Welcome, everybody. Uh, I would like to thank AUA for creating the upcoming program on bulbar urethral strictures. And I know that the next half hour will be very informative and exciting. I'm very fortunate to introduce this outstanding panel of reconstructive experts from different institutions. Our panelists today are Dr. Amanda Chan, urological surgeon at Sydney Medical School, Dr. Brian Volsky, Spokane Urology, Dr. Lindsay Hampson, assistant professor at UCSF, and Dr. Matthias Hofer, assistant professor at Northwestern University. And I'll be your moderator, Dmitry Nikolavsky, associate professor at SUNY Upstate Medical University. Just to uh, set a little background for our discussion today, in 2016, AUA published uh, a guidelines on, uh, on urethral strictures, and uh, I provide here a, a short guideline summary as it relates to bulbar strictures. So AUA indicated that uh, uh, workup is very important prior to offering uh, any invasive treatments uh, for urethral stricture and endoscopy and imaging are very important to define the uh, diagnosis of stricture and define the severity of stricture. They also define the role for endoscopic options such as dilations or DVIU. Here they are summarized as uh, this may be offered as initial treatment for short bulbar strictures. They could be offered for emergencies and for poor surgical candidates. For everything else, there is urethroplasty, and this could be offered for refractory or initial treatment of any strictures, and specifically for initial treatment of longer bulbar urethral strictures. Uh, further, uh, they discussed that uh, urethroplasty may be performed using a variety of techniques based on the experience of the surgeon. So on one hand, you have this plethora of urethroplastic techniques, and you could choose uh, any one of them based on stricture, length, location, etiology, your own experience and knowledge of success and failure rates of each urethroplasty. On the other hand, we have to consider patient factors, such as prior surgeries or otherwise uh, altered vascular anatomy of the urethra, uh, uh, effect on sexual function, quality of life, lower urinary tract symptoms, and uh, inco uh, continence or incontinence status. So I would like to introduce our, uh, to you our index patients with seemingly similar short bulbar strictures. But if you look closer uh, at the image in here, uh, the uh, strictures are a little bit in different locations. Uh, they are of different etiologies. Patients have different surgical histories, and there are different stages of life and possibly different goals of treatment. Uh, you could see a 19-year-old male with severe straddle injury, uh, a 30-year-old with uh, prior hypospadias repair and uh, uh, stricture in the mid-bulbar urethra unrelated to uh, hypospadias repair. There is a 55-year-old with a recurrent stricture after prior excision primary anastomosis and a 75-year-old with a short, very proximal bulbar stricture. So our panelists Today, we'll show you how to work through all these considerations and to be able to look each patient in the eye and advise them on the best uh, stricture management. And uh, the first panelist is Dr. Amanda Chan. Thank you, Dimitri. Today, I'll be discussing an overview of existing options of urethroplasty for bulbar urethral strictures. When treating bulbar urethral strictures, patient selection and proper surgical procedure choice are paramount to maximize the chance of successful outcomes. Factors to consider include patient factors and disease factors. A well-performed retrograde urethrogram is important for surgical planning as it will delineate the location, length and severity of the stricture. 
In patients depending on an indwelling urethral catheter or intermittent self-dilatation, surgeons may place a suprapubic catheter prior to definitive urethroplasty. This will allow urethral rest and an accurate retrograde urethrogram to be performed. When consenting a patient for a urethroplasty operation, it is important to be prepared for a degree of intraoperative flexibility, and even if an excision and primary anastomosis, or EPA, is planned, to consent for possibility of graft use in case of unexpected intraoperative findings. Good preoperative planning will maximise chance of smooth operation with long-term success. In general, for bulbar urethral strictures, we, one will need to consider whether it can be suitably treated with urethroplasty without tissue transfer or whether urethroplasty with tissue transfer will be required. A urethroplasty without tissue transfer may be performed as an EPA, uh, which involves transecting and removing the urethral stricture segment with corresponding corpus spongiosum and reanastomosing the healthy urethral ends or it may be performed as a non-transecting urethral anastomotic, uh, sorry, a non-transecting anastomotic urethroplasty. An excision and primary anastomosis has a high success rate, 93 to 99%. In radiation urethral stricture, the success rate lowers. However, there are also concerns regarding sexual function with this technique. A vessel sparing excision primary anastomotic urethroplasty has also been described with comparable success rates to the standard EPA. A non-transecting anastomotic urethroplasty may be performed such as by excision of the strictured urethra with an reanastomosis or longitudinal incision over the urethral stricture with transverse closure in a Heinecke-Michelitz fashion. When performing urethroplasty with tissue transfer, the AUA guidelines recommend that oral mucosa should be used as first choice when using grafts for urethroplasty and that one should not perform single-stage tubularized grafts or use hair-bearing skin for substitution urethroplasty. When using buccal mucosa graft, uh, one must also decide whether to place the graft dorsal or ventral, onlay or inlay, uh, to perform a non-transecting or a transecting urethroplasty, and whether there's any additional stricture manipulation that is required, uh, such as excision and reanastomosis, Heinecke-Michelitz, or a combined ventral and dorsal buccal mucosa graft. A systematic review has shown that there is no significant difference between the average success rates of the dorsal and the ventral onlay procedures, uh, with the success rates being about 88% each. Uh, when deciding on what kind of urethroplasty to do, I think a key uh, factor, in addition to stricter etiology, location, severity, prior treatment, comorbidity and patient preference, is to always be cognizant of the vascularity of the urethra and corpus spongiosum and any factors which may interfere with the anti-grade and retrograde blood supply to the urethra now and into the future. Let us consider the case of the first index patient, the 19-year-old man with straddle injury. We see his retrograde urethrogram shows a 1.5 centimetre obliterative bulbar urethral stricture. Features to consider are that straddle injury strictures are full thickness injuries. It is short and it is obliterative. Uh, an excision and primary anastomosis would be my procedure of choice uh, because it will excise the full thickness disease with no buccal mucosa uh, graft site morbidity. It is a transecting uh, technique though, so it's important to be aware of the contraindications. Let us consider the second index case, a 30-year-old with prior hypospadias repair. 
Features to consider include the unreliable retrograde vascularity of the corpus spongiosum. Therefore, do not transect the urethra. Uh, it looks like it is a long uh, stricture to me, about three centimetres, in the penoscrotal junction position. And therefore, if transecting and uh, pulling the two ends on tension, we do risk cordy for the patient. My technique of choice for this patient would be a urethroplasty with a buccal mucosa graft, which may be performed as a dorsal onlay. It will avoid tension and therefore prevent cordy. Uh, it is a non-transecting technique, therefore uh, respecting the vascularity, and it can treat the entire length of the stricture. It, however, may be more technically challenging to perform. Let us consider the third index case, a 55-year-old with recurrent stricture and prior EPA. The features to consider here are the anterograde retrograde vascularity of the corpus spongiosum and the loss of continuity of that. And therefore, I would recommend not transecting uh, the urethra at a different site. Uh, therefore, I would aim to perform a urethroplasty with buccal mucosa graft, and this may be performed as a dorsal onlay or perhaps also as a ventral onlay. It avoids transecting the urethra, may treat the entire uh, length of the stricture, um, but will involve the morbidity of a buccal mucosa graft harvest site. Let us consider the fourth index case, the 75-year-old uh, with proximal bulb or stricture. Features to consider include any previous surgeries and treatment uh, in a man of this age, such as previous TURP or radiotherapy and, any, and its impact on vascularity and continence in the past and possibly in the future as well. An EPA would be simple to perform, although the vascularity uh, needs to be considered, especially if it is a radiation stricture or if there may be uh, future continence surgery, such as an artificial urinary sphincter. A urethroplasty with buccal mucosa graft may better preserve the vascularity as it is non-transecting, um, but does include a harvest site. A non-transecting anastomotic urethroplasty is also an option, but the stricture looks relatively long to me, so it may not be suitable depending on the intraoperative conditions and may need a combination of techniques to address it in full. In summary, I've outlined the urethroplasty types for a bulbar urethral stricture. Uh, patient selection and proper surgical procedure choice are paramount to maximise the chance of successful outcomes, and that includes both consideration of patient factors and disease factors. And I think it's important to always be cognizant of the vascularity of the urethra and corpus spongiosum and any factors which may interfere with the antegrade and retrograde supply to the urethra when choosing your technique. Thank you. Hello, thank you to the AUA for the, inv for the invitation to speak at this session. I'll be speaking about how patient report outcome measures can improve quality of life after bulbar urethroplasty. In 2006, the AUA Guidelines Committee stated that patient report outcome measures may be used after a history and physical exam in the workup of urethral stricture. I will hopefully convince everyone that they should be used because they serve as a useful adjunct for patients with urethral stricture disease. For example, the patient's perspective is their perspective about the outcome measure, and it's irrespective of the input of the clinician. It's often the outcome of greatest importance to the patients because it's their view. Um, there are also no measurable outcomes, or it also is important to measure these outcomes when no biological outcome measure exists, such as their thoughts, complaints, and feelings, which translate to this next slide. While objective measures such as cystoscopy and Euroflow can give us important outcomes about the surgical patency, it doesn't tell us anything about the outcomes that also matter to the patients, such as their impact on their lifestyle, 
exploiting health, sexual function, and genital pain. And we can only get this through a patient-reported outcome measure. In this first study, this was a outcome. This is a, a study out of a multi-institutional uh, network of surgeons called Turns. Uh, we use non-validated measures as well as some non-validated items. And what we found was that when we controlled for outcome, uh, significant drivers of dissatisfaction were sexual dysfunction, persistent urinary tract symptoms, and urethra and/or bladder pain. Similarly, in an article that was just accepted in the Gold Journal of Urology, Keith work at the University of Alberta found that with similar methodology, there were also significant drivers of dissatisfaction. This was despite a surgical patency approaching 90%. So patients still had these issues after surgery. And without a patient report outcome measure to assess for this, the surgeon would be maybe not aware that these issues exist, which could impact quality of life. In the next slides, I will discuss manuscripts that have looked at these significant drivers of dissatisfaction that hopefully enable, enable us to better counsel our patients. This first slide looks at post-micturition incontinence or post-void dribbling. What they found is that it was uh, present uh, irrespective of surgical repair type and also preoperative location of stricture and length. And what we found is that there was a 75% prevalence of post-micturition incontinence and this improved to 39% after surgery. There was also a low instance of de novo incontinence. A separate study looking at lower urinary tract pain in the setting of urethral stricture. Patients were asked before if they had pain using outcomes of never, rarely, sometimes, or often. Approximately 75% had some degree of genital or urethral pain prior to surgery, and this resolved in 64% of patients after surgery. So knowing this ahead of time can better help us to counsel our patients. In a separate study looking at urinary urgency and urgent continence, over 10% 10, uh, 10 of patients had worsening of their urgency and urgent continence after surgery, um, but for the most part, it improved or stayed stable. So it's important for us to ask the right questions. This is a study looking at patients with penile urethral strictures, and you can see when we used a questionnaire looking at the SHIM and MSHQ, which is erectile function and sexual dysfunction, there was no delta or change before or after surgery. But when you ask questions that were pertinent to the surgery, such as penile curvature, loss of penile length or altered penile sensitivity, these issues came up. So it's important for us to sort of ask the right questions when we're using the questionnaire and not just use any questionnaire. In 2011, the first uh, uh, manuscript showing a uh, urethral stricture specific patient report outcome measure was published. This was a big move for our field. Uh, the questions included in this questionnaire looked at voiding and health-related quality of life. Unfortunately, it didn't look at sexual function. It was patient and clinician derived. The clinicians who validated this questionnaire did look initially at sexual function, but in their view, they felt that there was a low baseline incidence of sexual dysfunction prior to surgery and didn't feel that this inclusion was necessary. I viewed this as a weakness based mainly on the slides I presented previously, and it would be helpful if this had been included in their initial questionnaire. Another weakness is they included generic quality of life questions. And we can see in this study that when you looked at these before and after surgery, it was rare that there was a change for generic quality of life questionnaires, but there was for urology or voiding specific questions. This is a separate questionnaire that we've developed through turns, and we've included patients throughout the process from the beginning with the concept solicitation interviews all the way to cognitive interviews of each item. One of the important outcomes from this article, which I think is important to highlight, is we asked patients and clinicians to rank of the 34 items in our initial questionnaire, the top 15 items that mattered the most. And then we compared how the physicians and the patients uh, evaluated these top 15 items. And what we found 
is there was only a 53% agreement between clinicians and patients, which further highlights that these patient point outcome measures when they're in the patient's voice are important to use. And final, there was a manuscript that, or I'm sure if we would have presented the AOA showing this questionnaire, which includes voiding and sexual outcome or sexual items, and they were both psychometrically strong in the pre- and post-operative setting with improvement of both symptoms. In summary, um, subjective impact of, urethral, of, the, of urethral stricture and the impact after bulbar urethroplasty outcome is important. Quality of research pertaining to urethral stricture and surgery outcome is improving, and this is improving as we have more uh, outcome, more studies evaluating granular research, and also better better clinical tools that allow us to better counsel our patients. Thank you. Great. Thank you to Dimitri and the AUA for the opportunity, and it's my pleasure now to talk about urinary incontinence and how it's related to bulbar strictures and their management. So we'll talk about a few different types of urinary incontinence, including post-void dribbling, urge incontinence, and stress incontinence, and I'll try to put these in perspective of our index cases. So first, post-void dribbling, we know that this affects about 30% of men in the general population and that the prevalence increases with age and has an impact on quality of life. Post-void dribbling complaints after urethroplasty are common, and this is thought to be due to bulbospongiosis muscle dysfunction, neuropraxia from perineal nerve injury, or grafts creating a reservoir effect in the urethra. This study, conducted by a multi-institutional network of surgeons called TURNS, looked at 331 individuals before and after anterior urethroplasty in order to study post-void dribbling. And if you see the graphs, on the left is a column which has the pre-op post-void dribbling scores, and on the right is the post-op scores. And those shaded in blue are the proportion of patients who had no post-void dribbling symptoms. And so if you look specifically at those with bulbar strictures, you find that about three quarters of them endorse post-void dribbling symptoms preoperatively. And those who have the peach, orange, or red colors um, have symptoms occasionally, sometimes, or most of the time. And then that decreased to about 40% of people with post-void dribbling symptoms postoperatively. And you can see that those uh, percentage of patients who had symptoms most of the time also significantly decreased from pre to postoperatively. In addition, in a multivariable analysis, type of repair was not found to be a significant predictor. So whether this was an anastomotic urethroplasty or one with a graft did not make a difference in development or worsening of symptoms. And BMI was the only factor that was found to be a predictor of both pre-op and post-void dribbling. So how do we use this to counsel our patients? If you have someone who has a stricture that you're going to repair who has existing post-void dribbling preoperatively. So let's take our 75-year-old with a short proximal bulbar stricture. About 60% of those patients will get improvement afterwards with only 8% developing worsening symptoms. If on the other hand, you have a patient without pre-op post-void dribbling, say our 19-year-old with a straddle injury, one in four will develop de novo post-void dribbling. So you can see it is really important to counsel these patients um, when planning their surgeries. Next, in terms of urinary urge incontinence, in general, symptoms of urge incontinence are fairly rare in the general population in men, occurring in less than 5%. However, we know that urge-related symptoms may develop in men with longstanding stricture disease because of detrusor instability caused by chronic obstruction, and this can lead to fibrotic changes of the bladder, decreased compliance, and smaller storage capacity that leads to these urge incontinence symptoms. Again, the TURNS network looked at urge incontinence before and after anterior urethroplasty, studying 305 individuals pre- and post-surgery. And what they identified was that those specifically with bulbar stricture 
about 28% of them endorsed urge incontinence preoperatively, and that number decreased to 11% postoperatively. And they did find that with increasing age, individuals were more likely to, develop, to have urge incontinence symptoms both pre- and postoperatively. So if you look at the graph on the right-hand side, um, this is the pre-op urge incontinence scores. And on the left is a column with a score of zero, and that means that patients have no symptoms of urge incontinence. On the right is the column with a score of three, which is the most severe symptoms of urge incontinence. Those shaded in green represent those who had improvement after urethroplasty, those in yellow had no change after urethroplasty, and those in red developed worsened symptoms after urethroplasty. And overall, you can see that 96% of people either had stable or improved symptoms after urethroplasty. And in addition, the type of repair was not found to be a significant predictor. So again, how do we use this information to counsel our patients? If someone has pre-op urge incontinence, let's take our 55-year-old with a recurrent stricture after prior EPA, he has a three out of four chance of getting improvement in those symptoms after surgery. Now, we do know that this is less likely with older age. So if you look instead at, say, our 75-year-old who has pre-op urge incontinence, he may um, have a lower likelihood of getting improvement after surgery. In terms of those without pre-op urge incontinence, let's take our 30-year-old with a prior hypospadias repair. He has a very low chance of developing de novo urge incontinence, only 5%. And again, this is more likely with older age. So our 75-year-old, on the other hand, may have a higher chance of developing de novo urge incontinence, even though it's still a very low rate. Finally, stress urinary incontinence. Um, in terms of repairs of strictures to the bulbar urethra, we're fortunate in that they don't tend to impact continence. However, we still must consider the future need for an anti-incontinence surgery when planning our repair of bulbar strictures. We know that data show that patients with transecting and astomotic urethroplasties have a higher likelihood of failure when they do uh, end up getting artificial urinary sphincter implantation for stress urinary incontinence due to higher rates of erosion and infection. And this is thought to be related to the fact that transection likely causes compromised blood supply to the spongiosum. So it is very important to take this into account when planning your surgery. And this may be important in the case of the 19-year-old who has a straddle injury. He has a long life to live ahead of him. He may in the future need to undergo a prostatectomy where he develops stress urinary incontinence and needs treatment. So where his stricture may look short and amenable to a transecting and astomotic urethroplasty, you may consider non-transection in him for this reason. Furthermore, for the 75-year-old, he may have already undergone a prostatectomy or a TERP. He may have pre-existing stress urinary incontinence. And again, although you might consider a transecting urethroplasty, you may choose instead to consider non-transection because you know that you will in the future need to place an artificial urinary sphincter and to optimize your outcomes. So in summary, we know that the prevalence of post-void dribbling and urge incontinence is very high among those presenting with anterior urethral strictures. Importantly, the majority of symptoms will stay stable or improve after anterior urethroplasty, and this is important in counseling our patients. Luckily, de novo symptoms are uncommon, about one in four for post-void dribbling and only 5% for those with urge incontinence. We know from data that repair type does not seem to predict improvement or worsening of these symptoms, but it is important to consider the potential future need for an anti-incontinence procedure when planning repair. And specifically, this relates to avoiding transection in those who may require treatment for stress incontinence in the future in order to optimize their outcomes. Thank you. Thanks to the uh, 
Thanks to the AOA and uh, to Dimitri for uh, having me on this panel and thanks to all the prior speakers for their excellent talks. I want to shed some light about uh, sexual dysfunction after urethral reconstruction, after bulbar urethral reconstruction. The age, if you look at the age of the urethroplasty, the vast majority are done in patients between 20 and 60 years old, which is an age in which a sexual function is uh, very important. The sexual function is, uh, we can compartmentalize this in ED, erectile dysfunction, ejaculatory dysfunction, sensory dysfunction, and penile shortening and cordia. If we look at the etiology on the ED, let's look at the vascular supply of the urethra. And uh, these are branches of the pudendal artery and a disruption of the bulbar blood flow as it enters into the corpus spongiosum can impair the recirculation um, in, uh, in the uh, penile arteries and then the branches that go into the corpora cavernosa. And uh, similarly, uh, injury to cavernous nerves as we dissect around the bulbar urethra can lead to impaired erection. And the frequency of the ED in bulbar urethroplasty, I mentioned this, uh, the two different techniques, the transecting and the non-transecting techniques, because uh, Dr. Jung had uh, outlined those major techniques uh, for uh, bulbar urethroplasty. And uh, the frequency in a transecting technique is about uh, twice as much as a non-transecting techniques. However, in these papers, um, there is no significant difference is in an observation. And the good news about this is that the erectile dysfunction will resolve over time. If you look at the studies, any studies that follow these patients uh, um, three years and out did not find any um, uh, any incidents of ED, and the idea is that within a year, a year and a half, that will resolve. Now, what are the best techniques to preserve ED? It is sparing the bulbar arteries, or at least sparing one bulbar artery. So if you have to sacrifice one, just try to uh, keep the other one that's uh, usually sufficient, and limit the uh, nerve dissection by limiting the dissection, especially close to the corpus spongiosum. There was some uh, discussion about dorsally placed uh, buccal mucosa crafts that if they perform, if they uh, develop diverticular, can obstruct the uh, circulation in the uh, corpus spongiosum. Sparing of the perineal body and thus a sparing of nerve endings is also recommended. If we look at our four index patients, um, in the first patient, a 19-year-old with a straddle injury, in this patient, of course, the uh, erectile function, preservation of the erectile function is very important. In this case, a limiting the dissection would be um, um, imperative. The second uh, patient, similarly 30 years old, uh, very interested in erections, likely. In this case, the buckle craft um, would be a, a good choice for him. The uh, the last two patients um, in the 55-year-olds, the buccal craft should also not uh, contribute very much to erectile dysfunction. In this in this case, it would be important to mention to the patient, especially if there is some uh, some uh, um, pre-existing erectile dysfunction, that um, um, it would not make it better. And similarly, the last patient with a short proximal bulbar stricture, the EPA would be a good operation here. Um, patient counseling, talk about ED uh, beforehand would be important. If you look at ejaculatory dysfunction, the major culprit here is the transection of the bulbous spongiosus muscle, the rhythmic contractions of the muscle being important to uh, uh, propel the ejaculate. Also, injury to perineal nerves can happen during a dissection in the proximal bulb, which then can injure or can impair the muscle function. 
Lastly, albeit not a common, is diverticulum formation. Again, if the diverticulum, if the graft is placed ventrally, that then can, so to speak, store the semen um, instead of uh, letting it pass through. The uh, ejaculatory disorders are also slightly higher in transecting urethroplasty than non-transecting, but again, there is no statistical uh, significant, statistically significant difference. The um, bad news here is that ejaculatory dysfunction appear not to result. However, I think um, one we what we need to take into account is the patient's overall history, meaning if the patients also have uh, are on alpha blocker therapy. That's at least what I've noticed in my practice that plays into him into this with the anti-ejaculation caused by, for example, tamsulosin. What are the techniques to improve ejaculatory function? A placement of a double graft is possible, meaning you can limit the size of a ventrally placed graft if you also place one dorsally, or ideally only get away with a dorsal graft, albeit this is not always possible. What is very important is the drama to the bullspongulosis muscle. This is not so much the transection of it, which you need to do to get to the urethra, but the retraction um, uh, injury while you perform the surgery, especially the lone star retractor with its hooks can be uh, problematic. So in all of these patients, as I mentioned, there is a slightly higher incidence of, uh, of ejaculatory dysfunction in patients with transecting urethroplasty. So especially the 19-year-old should be counseled as well as a 70 year old. The uh, patient with the briper hyperspadius repair, I think uh, from looking at the rock here, you can get away with a dorsally placed graft, so his EF, ejaculatory dysfunction, should not be too much impaired. Then uh, just briefly to touch on this, a penile shortening and CODE can be a concern, especially during EPA, and if we look at the incidence of CODE and shortening formation, um, you can imagine if you cut a segment out of the urethra, it will shorten if there's tension on it. When the patient is erectioned, um, it will bend downward to where the shorter than original corpuspongiosum in the urethra is, especially patients with long EPA have a high incidence, although it can also be seen in those with uh, buccal mucosa graft. So in summary, de novo ED is common, but it resolves within a year or year and a half. Um, ejaculatory dysfunction and cordy do not go away, but the incidence overall is slow, which is the good news. There is overall high variability in reported frequency in sensory and vascular disorders. So as Dr. Volsky said, um, I think more patient outcome um, questionnaires and, 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 and follow-up on this after the procedures is, is important to actually define um, a further to better define the side effects, uh, sexual side effects of urethroplasty. Um, if you perform a bulbar uh, urethroplasty, counsel the patient, um, perform the surgery that is indicated for the stricture and uh, counsel the patient on the potential side effects. Limit your transection around the uh, especially proximal bulbar urethra, place your crafts dorsally if you can, and be careful with retraction of the bulbospongiosis muscle. Thank you. I would like to thank the panel for wonderful presentations. Here are a couple of take-home points to summarize uh, the discussion. We all want to choose the best possible technique for our patients uh, to achieve the, uh, the highest surgical success and the highest patient satisfaction. So the factors to consider uh, in uh, advising the patient on the best technique are patient preferences and health status, structure length and etiology, 
Uh, we need to be aware of a variety of different techniques and their success and failure rates. We need to consider prior surgeries and uh, vascular anatomy uh, of the urethra, effects on sexual function and continence. Thank you very much.